2: Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
3: Hello and welcome to our final episode of Policy Forum Pod for 2022. I'm Anna Greta-Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow here at the Australian National University.
2: And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net based right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. As we end 2022 and approach the new year, you may be thinking about taking up some study or doing some graduate training into the new year. If you want to do that, please think about the Crawford School. It is an incredibly exciting place to be studying with amazing academics and incredible students. You can find out more about our graduate degrees and our executive education programs by visiting crawford.anu.edu.au study. Anna Greta, we find ourselves at the last episode of the year and This is always a little bit sad because I do love our conversations every week and and I'll miss them over the summer. But what a remarkable year we've had.
3: Sharon, it has been the most extraordinary year. So extraordinarily grateful for for joining you each week and talking through these issues and the most amazing range of guests we've had coming through Policy Forum Pod this year who've shared their thoughts and their wisdom and their learning. Sharon i feel like we've had a seismic shift in terms of the conversations this year and it's one on which i for which i am extraordinarily grateful i know that over the last couple of years i've felt this mounting distress as we articulate the extraordinary complex important challenges across a really broad range of policy areas Climate change is an obvious example, biodiversity, and we began the year talking with Kelly O'Shaughnessy from ACF, talking about uh, animal extinctions in the Australian context. We've talked to some fabulous leaders about climate change and Mark Howden and Barbara Norman amongst them. We've talked about the challenge of, of racism and sexism. Um, we looked at the problem of violence against women and girls with disabilities. And I know that the tone and tenor at the beginning of this year was one of maybe it's a muted panic where we could articulate the extraordinary need for change. And yet I think our faith in achieving that had been shaken by the years that had come beforehand. The federal election, of course, also played a role in our podcast this year, and it was a great opportunity for us to be part of a live policy forum pod recording here at the Australian National University. But in the light of that federal election win, a federal election win where we saw a change of government from the Liberal Party through to the Labor Party, but also an extraordinary landslide for the community-based independent movement and a real change in the tenor of conversation on uh, at Parliament House, I feel like the conversations we've had since then are going through, again, systems under strain, looking at the significant policy challenges that we face, that we've had this injection of hope. Uh, hope for transformative change, hope for at least the potential for conversations, hope that was not there uh, at the beginning of the year.
2: And Greta, I, I think you've summed that up so beautifully in terms of the journey that we've been on this year. Like you, I always feel so incredibly privileged to be able to have these conversations each week and the people that we, we talk to are genuinely extraordinary. And and more than that are people who are every day trying to bring about positive change in the world. And that is such an important thing. And even though many of our conversations have been incredibly confronting and and, and, and sometimes quite depressing, that sense that there are people who are working for positive change always leaves me with a sense of hope and optimism. Um, and and just to i guess to pick up on that point you made around how this year we seem to have moved to a place where we can have difficult conversations but maintain a sense of of, of perhaps moving towards solutions is so important hope and optimism are so important to us and when I think back across the the podcasts that we've done over this year you know one that really stays with me is that conversation that you mentioned with Kelly O'Shaughnessy around the the mass extinction of, um, of wildlife in Australia. And that is a problem that we still have. It hasn't gone away over the course of this year. And I think that is something that we just must focus on. Imagine what it would be if the koala became extinct. I mean, that is simply unimaginable. We have to, as human beings, change our behaviours to ensure that we don't threaten the other species that that share this planet. Like you had there were so many conversations that we had this year that have really stayed with me. The education bundle that we did, I really think back to so often, and I think particularly of those conversations that we had uh, with Kitty Toreel and Jen Scatterbowl about early childhood education. Um, with Alice Garner and Pussy Salzberg about how we can think differently about school, Janine O'Flynn and Helen Sullivan about how we can think differently about tertiary education and university education. And together, I loved that bundle of episodes because they really are about doing things differently, about hope and optimism for change, and how we can forge pathways to a better future. And education is such a powerful way of doing that.
3: The interesting thing about the upcoming holidays is that in contrast to the last few years, I'd like to keep learning and thinking. I feel like because there is an opportunity for change, because the quality of our debate has really shifted, that that I am more, more engaged with these issues. And I know I'll be going back over that education mini-series. The health system conversations we had were extraordinary and I think that were some of the most difficult conversations I've had this year. Uh, but there's such a lot of rich uh, content in those conversations that really informs the challenge that I know we will see through the years that are coming. And I'm ready to do that at the end of this year compared to the end of last year. I'm really excited. What are we going to do to wrap up today's conversation, Sharon? How are we going to tie the threads of this year together?
2: Well, I think what better way of ending the year than looking backwards and thinking about the challenges that we've had but also the opportunities that have emerged across the year and looking, looking forwards to thinking about what 2023 might bring and perhaps keeping those themes of hope and optimism and the possibility for transformative thinking alive so Anna Greta, it's pretty exciting to be ending the year with a conversation with two people that we've had on the pod in the past, but two people that I know we both always enjoy talking with, Catherine Trebek and Millie Rooney, two genuinely visionary and transformative thinkers.
3: That's fantastic to have the two of them with us today.
2: I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So, Catherine, could we start with you and could you introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Thanks, Sharon. Great to be here. I'm Catherine Trebek and I'm, I guess, an advocate for economic system change. I'm the co-founder of a group called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and I now do sort of a bit of a portfolio of different different work here in Australia. And oh, I should also say I'm a writer in residence at the University of Edinburgh.
2: Catherine, it is such a delight to have you with us. Last time you were on the pod, I missed the conversation, so I am so glad we have the opportunity to to talk before the year ends. And Millie, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, thanks, Sharon. And it's so nice to be here with Catherine. What fun. Um, so I'm the National Coordinator for Australia Remade, which is an organisation that's really interested in like, what's a big collective yes? You know, what are we, what are we aiming for? And also, what's the analysis of, of how do we actually get there? What are the underlying structures that hold us in place or enable us to kind of move towards the vision? Um, but another way I like to introduce myself is I'm a social scientist by training. I'm just really nosy and interested in other people and how the world works. And I have a job where I can, I can do that. I can ask people questions and, and talk about how people come together in different ways. So I feel very lucky in that way.
2: What a fabulous introduction, Millie. Really. I love the fact of nosy curiosity to understand maybe not just how the world works, but how we can make it a better place for us all to be. Um, it's, it's such a treat to have you both with us today. And what we, as I said at the beginning, what we're going to do today is, is really reflect on the year that was and, and look forward. And we thought that perhaps we might start Um, by each of us talking about the good news from this year and the positive developments. And I'm just going to say at the outset, as someone who can probably only be described as a soccer tragic, someone who absolutely adores the beautiful game, um, for me, one of the highlights was Australia doing so incredibly well and doing us so proud in the World Cup. We didn't get beyond Argentina, but we certainly did well. And as a former goalkeeper, I also wanted to that that second goal was not a goalkeeping error; it was a defensive mistake. Um, so now that I've entered with that, I feel much better. Um, and looking forward into twenty twenty three, Australia is hosting the Women's World Cup. You know what a magnificent um, time that is going to be. But let's move from sport to perhaps other things, and I'll ask each of you what you thought the most positive developments were, the most positive policy developments throughout twenty twenty two. Catherine, can you begin with? Can we begin with you? Um, and what has really struck you over this past year in terms of the good policy news?
1: Sure, and this is one of those questions that probably as I'm going to bed tonight and brushing my teeth, I'll think of all the things I should have said. So... Just off, off the top of my head, I mean, I, so inevitably this will probably be most re- recent, but I, I think the fact that loss and damage was on the agenda at the COP27 is so important because it starts to really put on the table the understanding of the inherent social injustices in the climate question and starts to open up the discussion of what those richer industrialised countries owe to the rest of the world that are being really feeling the effects of, of climate change. And so I think the fact that that conversation is really now firmly on the table and there's commitments for funding and so on, it's not 100% sorted yet. But I think that's really, really a positive move. And in no small part, just from the tenacity of those smaller island countries, those more vulnerable countries, just constantly pushing that that envelope. And, and I guess that also speaks to the fact that globally, Australia no longer needs to hang its head in shame around its discussion around climate policy. It's back, uh, not nearly as ambitious as it needs to be, but at least the conversation is happening. So I think that's that's positive. Uh, I mean, speaking of sport, though, and women's sport, I've just moved back this year to Australia after 17 years away, and it's really striking almost how, I won't say 100% normalised, but certainly compared to back in 2005 when I was last living here, just the prevalence of a women's sport in news and discussion and not as a special oh here we've got a feature on women's football or women's footy but it's becoming just so just the dumb thing um, to really talk about women's sport naturally and i think that's a really important move that other elements of women in public life women in their situation in the labour market I think that will follow so I think that's an important shift in the way the debates and discussions are are happening here and I mean there's other conversations that I think uh, we could dive into perhaps around the fact that the the referendum around the voice to parliament is going to happen Um, it's fraught and I, I don't feel an expert in it but I think the fact that it's also on the table and the world will be watching Um, and Australia better hurry up and get its act in order on that that front. Uh, I'll stop there and listen to others' thoughts. Catherine, I think they're they're such great
2: conversation starters for us. And we spoke um, just a week or so ago with Siobhan MacDonald and George Carter, who have been at the centre of trying to negotiate around loss and damage and for the establishment of a fund for, for years. And like you, I think the, the work that people from the small island states have done around that is is simply extraordinary and has provided such leadership internationally and has placed different issues on the agenda. You know, one of the things that strikes me so powerfully when we think about loss and damage is that this isn't just about material loss and damage. It's about damage to culture. It's about damage to identity, to one's place in the world, in in all the meanings of the term place. And I think that shift in the way we talk about what matters is also incredibly important, that we're recognising those things that are not tangible, but are absolutely central to what makes us human um, and what makes us value this planet that we live on so much. But Millie, what's your thinking on the good news stories from from this year around policy developments?
0: I find it really hard to think about the kind of detailed policy specifics. I mean, that's not really my job, but I was thinking... More it feels like a year of cracking open of possibility. And I think it's partly because it's not just the positive, it's the negative and what the negative has led to. Um, and you know, you think about sport, I mean like I don't really know anything about soccer. I don't, I don't really understand it, I'm not that interested. But I have noticed, you know, sport has been a place where people have been standing up and talking about what matters. And I think that's been really interesting to me that there's more people coming out, whether it's around um you know indigenous issues or gender issues like sport has seemed more courageous in a whole bunch of different ways, and I think that's that's a sign maybe of the landscape changing a bit um as catherine said the the voice to parliament you know I think that is an incredible seed that is is hope you know will sprout next year, and it also has come at a time you know with the death of the queen and what that actually did for opening up a conversation and a possibility that is complex, but again created a new landscape for different kind of conversations and obviously changing government shifted the, the landscape across a whole lot of policy areas so for me I'm less excited about a specific issue you know there's been stuff around well-being and child care and all of those different things but it feels like we can just take a breath and think oh what's the yes and like it's not Nothing is good enough. You know, the climate stuff is not good enough, but it's something we can bounce off and bounce higher from. So I actually feel more excited by the general context in which policy can happen than any of the specifics there. I'm I'm so curious as well for you, Sharon and Anna Greta.
3: Look, I'm going to actually just repeat a little bit, Millie and Catherine, I think you've already described the major highlights for, for this year, but I'm really struck by the shift in narrative and I'm fascinated by the way in which we use words in our public discussion um, and I, I thinking about climate change, thinking about the, the challenge of the environmental issues that we face, particularly in the Australian context, but also, as you mentioned, Catherine, thinking about it in, through the lens of the COP negotiations, the fact that our government now uses that phrase, climate change, that we can use those words out loud, that we, um, we're we not laughing about it, we're not scared, we're not hiding those words. We've spent a lot of time, I think, in the last decade pretending that the science didn't exist or try to work about uh, around how to talk about complex issues without being able to use a full range of language, talk about racism without talking about the factors around colonisation, look at the representation of our First Nations people, look at the representation of women... And I think there has been a seismic shift just in our narrative, in the words that we're allowed to use in our public policy debate. And so that's why this year, I think, has been one of the most extraordinary, um, culminating after multiple years of hardship and suffering. And that's not to one moment uh, downplay the, the suffering that I still see around and that I suspect we'll continue to discuss throughout this podcast. But at least we can have honest conversations, um, recognising the sorts of challenges that are here, and we, we can't solve a problem unless we can discuss it. So I feel like we've taken a seismic shift forward. Now, now, Sharon, I'm just wondering whether there was anything other than football that you'd like to, <laughs> add to this, contribute to this part of our conversation. Well, football
2: has figured uh, quite powerfully in my thinking under Greta of late, and it's going to get much worse or perhaps better, depending on your perspective, into next year when we have the Women's World Cup here. But um, beyond that, look, I I guess in, in some ways I'm going to re- reiterate what, what each of you have said. To me, the fact that we are having conversations that we haven't been able to have for such a long time is so incredibly important. And I know in in the the work that I do and the discussions that I have, particularly with people working in the public sector, have really been so incredibly different. And I mean, I I think in Australia, as in many countries, we have some incredibly talented, committed, dedicated people working within the public sector. Um, And the number of people who have said to me, it is so exciting, it is so refreshing to be able to think differently, to be able to talk differently and to be able to to really imagine the kind of country that we might be able to have. As you say, Anna Greta, using language that is difficult. You know, we we hear the words climate change being used. We hear the words poverty and disadvantage being used in a way that doesn't blame and stigmatise people, but is starting to say what are the underlying drivers um, of these issues. And I think that shifting conversation is so incredibly important. And the point that I would make here is, when we have these these discussions, you know, much of this is about a change of government. But as a as a very wise colleague of mine said recently, these issues are political, but they shouldn't be partisan. And so, in saying how important this shift is, I think it's important that we're not partisan, but we say the political shift matters because these are political conversations that we really need to have. And of course, Amanda, you know, you and I have have talked about the importance of valuing care um, throughout this year and in the year previous. And one of the questions that I've perhaps put to each of you is: Do we see care emerging as a value that? the government is is committing to. Um, is that part of the shift that we've seen? Andna Greta, is this a government that's that's caring more than the past, or perhaps to put it in non-partisan terms, are we starting to see care genuinely valued in our political and policy conversations?
3: Yeah, I, Sharon, I think you make a really important point, and I do think part of what we're seeing here is a shift in the way that politics is done in the Australian landscape. And part of it can be attributed to the change in government and a government that I think have been very considered in the work that they've done in terms of the policy approach um, during their, their protracted period in opposition. But equally, we can see the shift in narrative come from the community-based independent movement and the sort of politicians that we're seeing really supported by their uh, by their by their electors, and taking quite seriously the role of the the work that they do as members of parliament. So I, I do think there's been a seismic shift, which is not partisan. Um, and in my moments of optimism, I'm very much hoping that Australian uh, the, the Australian politics that we see now will begin to change some of the, the ongoing challenges in other parts of the world with similar sorts of partisan. Uh, systems and so, I, I do hope that what we're seeing is the beginning of a significant non-partisan shift in our our policy conversations. Do I think that this government is is actually valuing care? I, I do, and I think you see it in the language that they use. You see it in the language that's used by the community-based independents. You see it explicitly in the language of the minor parties such as the Greens. And so it's not something to laugh about or to make fun of like our former uh, members of parliament have done. I do think we're taking this seriously, that that caring is a serious objective of policy um, and that it can be a driver for
0: change. Millie, what are your thoughts? oh, I've got heaps in different directions. But I mean, I think your point about the community minded independence as really setting a standard and kind of showing this is how you can do politics. We saw down here in Hobart recently, um, there were just the local council elections and there was some pretty nasty politics going on. And the group of independents actually decided to band together this election in a similar way to the community minded independence. You know, they're, they're not formally aligned but they made a pact to engage in politics with kindness and that included people who they had radically different views to and they they really turned the tone of the debate around and that actually enabled you know they did quite well um but it it really was a statement of kind of courage almost of like no no care for each other regardless of who wins is something we value. So I thought that was a really interesting mentoring of these independents for the parties and for other independents that I, I think we can't really um, undervalue. And and things like there's a Liberal senator up in the north here, Bridget Archer, and, you know, she is also in that mould. So I think really remembering that the spotlight on those who are embodying that care process are, are not necessarily tied to particular parties, just some get more, you know, spotlight than others. I think in terms of that question about is this government caring, I I feel really torn around the narratives going on here because it, it is radically different and it's possible to talk about it. And we are still seeing so many people feeling deeply uncared for who could hear us and be like, well, that's nice, but don't gaslight me on this on this statement. And I, I think there's a real line to walk because it's that yes and stuff again. How do we say, yes, this is a shift and yes, this is awesome and, and yes, we want to lean into this and, you know, And you know what care really means? Care means making it really easy to get access to the disability support pension. You know, I've recently been through a process with people for that and it's a nightmare that makes you feel like an uncared for, irrelevant, unworthy person. So how do we, I mean, this is a, a real question I think we have and I'd love your thoughts on it. How do we celebrate this genuine progress and also say we want more without seeming bitter and nasty about it. I, I think you know, and partly a, a part of the answer I think is these conversations where we can actually celebrate and and say yes. And but so it's, it's a tension for me. I'm trying to work out. I'm in, I'm interested in your thoughts as well.
1: I can I can dive in on that. I feel conflicted too because I think that idea of care. There's a couple of sort of connotations. So I mean, is it? care as in the caring economy so a lot of the work that's done in homes and communities that's not recognized in our formal economic statistics so there's that element of care and how do we support particularly people who are undertaking that care work and then and i think the this government seems to be taking some steps towards recognizing that with some, you know child care and hey parental leave and and so on and then there's a bigger question around the word caring around and because it begs caring for who you know who are we caring for and and for what and I think everyone cares uh it's just what is it they put their prioritization on and so at my role at Edinburgh University the little team I'm associated with is a center around compassion and my brief there is to look at how compassion and the economy come together and I've been sort of playing around with that sort of interface a little bit and sort of just sort of messing about in it a little bit, stirring it up, and see, seeing what comes to the, or shaking it up a bit like a cocktail, and seeing what comes up. And one of the things that really comes to the fore is that what's a non not compassionate approach to the economy is where we individualize suffering, where we individualize hardship, and I think that that conversation is still quite prevalent in Australia. There's a lot of talk around resilience. Uh, There's a lot of talk around people changing their mindsets and changing their way of thinking. There's a very sort of almost a therapy response when actually people are struggling because of pretty dire economic circumstances in a world that is under environmental breakdown. And so to individualise that response is missing the bigger picture and it puts all the onus on the individual to change. And to me that feels deeply uncaring, deeply lacking in compassion and so... What I'm sort of toying with at the moment is this idea that actually a compassionate economy is one that looks upstream to the way we design our economic systems, the, who we ask questions around who is winning and who is losing out of them, what sort of activities are prioritised and and supported. And I, I what I don't see yet in Australia, and I'd be happy to be corrected if if that's just my the small window that I have thus far since coming back, is a, a more nuanced discussion around what sort of business models we, we want to really propagate. In Australia, there seems to be quite a, a deference to business unilaterally, uh, rather than saying, what what sort of models do we need? Do we need business models that really imbue in them in the values and a sense of the purpose of business being more than just making short term profit. Uh, and I think there's the macro conversation equivalent of that is around, I don't see yet really the discussion around what sort of economy do we need and what is the very purpose. Of the economy. Is it and, and so what I see is that the economy is put up as a goal in its own right. We see these assumptions that we grow the economy and everything will be fine, this sort of 1980s trickle-down mindset. There's a lot of frenzy around productivity, uh, as if that is automatically, unilaterally a good thing. Not, I don't see the questioning under the mechanisms under which productivity may or may not be a benefit for different communities, for, for workers, and let alone a discussion around could we even dare to ask actually is the economy something that we need to see as in service of goals such as social justice, such as a, a healthy planet? And so to me, if we're really taking this idea of caring beyond just the individual, compassionate, one-to-one spaces and really taking it to the societal level, it begs that we ask these sort of questions around the the macroeconomy.
0: I think there's a really interesting thing there, Catherine, which is we've moved, I would say we've moved in Australia in the last year, picking up your point, Anna Greta, to being allowed to talk about care and to being allowed to be strong when we talk about care. It's not just a little fluffy thing on the side. And so that's been a radical shift of like the purpose of government is now we understand to be broadly to do with care. And then I think, Catherine, as you're saying, we're yet to get to, you know, the economy is also actually there for care. And so I hadn't really thought of it like that, but there is, that's quite a significant change, even though we're perhaps not where we would like to end up.
2: Catherine, I think that's such an important point that you make about the the way we're thinking about the purpose of the economy here and uh, here in Australia. And I think that in Australia, we are still very much at the beginning of the conversation. And even when we've had this, what I think is a really important shift towards thinking about what might the budget look like if wellbeing were a part of that. But we're so close to the beginning of that. And I I think even when we had that conversation, we're not yet thinking in transformative terms. We're perhaps thinking about tinkering with the edges of what we've got, bringing in a little something more, but hanging on to what's already there. And, And so I think this is the beginning of a journey and it's a very long journey. And what we need to hope for here is that the journey continues and it continues in a way that opens up these conversations rather than closing them down as some particular vested interests say, actually, we want to hang on to what we've got because that works for us. Mm. And the other the other comment that I was just going to briefly make is when we use terms like care and caring or like compassion, it's so important that we think carefully about how we use them because all of those terms that so often can have positive connotations can also move very quickly into a a rather paternalistic conversation. And so to me it's always how do we have those conversations but hold social justice and hold inclusion um, and hold ideas of diversity tight while we have those conversations so we're not sort of replicating what's been there in the past and saying caring is on my terms or compassion is on my terms. How do we open this up so that this is a very inclusive conversation that we can all be part of and say, What is the society that we would like to have? What does that look like? Um, And how can we move forward even where there are tensions? Because there will inevitably be tensions.
3: What an extraordinary way to begin this conversation. We are going to take a really short break now and we'll come back in just a moment. Welcome back. We're here with Millie Rooney and Catherine Trebek. We've been reflecting on 2022, and we've particularly in the last, in the first section, talked about some of the opportunities I think that are much clearer at the end of this year than they were at the beginning. As we continue to reflect on the year and particularly consider what opportunities might be in front of us for the decades ahead, I would love to start this part of our conversation by thinking about the sort of challenges and perhaps some of the concerns that you've, you've had. And I know we've touched on some of the elements around this in our earlier part of the conversation. But Millie, can you tell me what's got you most concerned out of the policy events from this year?
0: Um, that's a big question, Anna Greta. <laughs> um again, I mean I think and that high level thing, the thing that is concerning me most is how we bring the disparate pieces of Australia together. And we've touched a little bit on that. You know, there's people feeling a lot of pain. Um, They're, you know, sharing your comments about justice and equality and bringing people in. And there was a recent report, um, the Scanlon Report on Social Cohesion, and it talked about, you know, trust is going up. So trust in government is actually better than it was pre-pandemic it's gone down a little bit in the last couple of years but it's still pretty good but the thing that has really decreased so local belonging is quite high a sense of that but the thing that has decreased is sense of pride and sense of belonging at a national level and so I'm quite concerned about how as we go into some pretty complex communications around things like the voice to parliament as we want to really ramp up our action on climate change, how do we do that in a context where there is actually very low, the lowest it's been, I think, since 2007, sense of national identity and pride? And I think so often we can shy away from that as something, you know, we worry that it's, you know, that it's a bad thing, that it, it ends up with that kind of, you know, nationalistic white supremacist identity. But Disruption is coming and disruption is here and we have to do the disrupting, right? So what is, what is the shared identity and shared thing we can be proud of that holds us together during this disruption? So I think it's a really exciting opportunity, but it is worrying that that is the context we're going to have to go into in terms of how policies are communicated and created and, and taken up and accepted by people.
3: Catherine, what are your thoughts? So, I, I guess I could sum
1: up my sort of disappointment with policy response, really in the sense that the the response the magnitude of the response is just far less than what is required for the state the world is in yeah uh, I mean this is this is a world where we've got a huge war on European soil we've got heat waves sweeping across Europe last summer we've had floods across Australia, half of Pakistan or a third of Pakistan was un- underwater a few months ago almost. Cost of living crisis. You know, numbers of homelessness, numbers of, of people sleeping in tents because their wages are not paying them enough to put how you know to get shelter for their families. And the response we seem to be getting is, again, and Sharon, you mentioned this, around that sort of downstream Band-Aid response. So Melbourne has announced, and one of my friends has been appointed to them, so I don't want to be too derogatory, but they're going to have heat officers to help provide sort of uh, sanctuary for vulnerable people during heat waves. Now, of course, that's absolutely important. but It's just such a downstream response In, in the UK, now alongside the huge plethora of food banks that we've just seen on the rise in the last decades, we've now got warm banks because of the energy response. And then, of course, in the and the response to the energy crisis and the price hikes in energy is, well, let's just get more out of the North Sea, let's open up more coal mines here, when it's, that's a short-term fix that's going to make everything worse Uh, And and I think this really speaks to to Millie's point that disruption is coming. The question is, are we going to get a handle on it in a way that we manage it or is it just going to batter batter us all and we know that it will be the most vulnerable, who we are already seeing here in Australia and around the world are being hit hardest? And so that's, I guess, my greatest disappointment, that in the face of these enormous, enormous challenges, we're seeing... Yeah, some nice policy responses. There's lots that I could list off from this government here in Australia, from state governments, from the UK government even, from Scottish government, which I think I'm most familiar with. Lots of great stuff, but it's not adding up. To the the systemic change in how we respond, how we redo our our economic systems, and so, you know, that line—it's not fit for purpose. Our our footy team may have been match fit, our policy response
3: absolutely isn't. Sharon, what are your thoughts? Uh,
2: I I agree entirely with with what. Millie and Catherine have just said, and I think that point, Catherine, that you make—that we're, we're kind of papering over these terrifyingly large chasms, rather than thinking about genuine transformation and what we need to do to keep the planet alive and to keep everyone that that relies on this planet living in a way that that is is not just um, adequate but meaningful—is is is deeply concerning. You know, we we really need transformative blue sky thinking and and I agree we're not seeing it but I also wanted to to dive down into the weeds just a little bit at, at two policy issues that have really concerned me I think because they speak to broader issues um, and neither of these are, are directly around climate or are, are around climate emergency and, and I do think that's probably the most confronting issue that we have to deal with but the two issues that, that have really concerned me um this year is is one the the discussions within the United States or the developments within the United States around Roe versus Wade, and the rolling back of of women's rights and gender equity, and that worries me on on many fronts. But it worries me because it shows how tenuous advances around gender equity can be, and that half the population still remains incredibly vulnerable to policies that strip away women's rights and and reinforce a patriarchy and sometimes a misogyny that means that, that women are marginalised. And as I think about generations of both women and men, boys and girls, coming through, you know, gender equity is so important to social justice, to the way we live. And when I think about those generations coming through in a context where we still haven't secured gender equity or the rights of women, I I find it deeply, deeply concerning. The other issue that has me somewhat worried is around the voice to parliament. And while that initiative I think is so incredibly important and so incredibly welcome, the fact that across the country we are not seeing an embrace of that, as the minimum step that we should be taking immediately, we see the nationals, despite some, some courageous members of the National Party taking a different position, we see the nationals pushing back against a voice and not, not supporting it. Um, and we see within the public, you know, a very mixed response. I think that's deeply worrying too, because until we come to terms in this country with the fact that we, we are a settler, society, that genocide was committed, and that there are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have an absolute entitlement to a voice to Parliament, we can't progress on so many other social justice issues. Um, So those two two things really worry me because of the larger issues that they they speak to.
0: Can
1: I just add in, um, almost as I guess a a hopeful counter on some of this front, Is, is one you know, elections around the world this this year have provided, I guess, a tentative hope of, of maybe that arc of progress is still bending in, in the right direction, despite some pretty enormous steps backwards in the, in the last few, few years. And I mean, Italy being one that's a huge step back. But I'm thinking here particularly of France went very, very close to electing Marine Le Pen, and the polls were pretty dire. But in the end, I mean, for all Macron's faults, he's not Le Pen, and and so he, he won more convincingly than people were expecting. And then the other one is Brazil, and the fact that we're already seeing Lula go over to the to Egypt and be present in the COP and start to say we, we understand how the, you know the Amazon is you know the lungs of the world, and we need to start turning around the tide of deforestation and, and really protect protect the Amazon. I think that's hopeful too. I. Obviously, gutted about the margin; it was very, very, very um, close. And and the other concerning point was in, in Chile around the, the constitutional referendum and how that didn't didn't get passed. But on Roe versus Wade specifically, um, one thing that does give me hope is the Irish story around abortion and how the the citizens' assembly approach and how just that giving folks everyday people the chance and the materials and the time to reflect and discuss and to learn from each other can be transformative of people's opinions and I think that contrast to so often how politics is done is is just is so depressing you know that shouty politics that I mean actually maybe Twitter imploding in itself is going to be a, a good thing from from that front but the difference between deliberative conversations and Millie has got such a beautiful track record of him really investing in creating and nurturing those sorts of conversations. And I think on something like abortion, they, that, that a country like Ireland can change its mind pretty much bec- through conversation does give me hope in deep-seated humanity when when people are given the chance to reflect and learn and look each other in the eye.
3: Wow. So some really significant challenges. And, and look, I often think about the upstream, downstream effects from our conversations, Catherine, and, and I know that one of the series of podcasts that we've hosted this year that I found probably most difficult was it was in the healthcare sector. And I wonder, and I think we've all touched on this issue, but in moments of crisis, when you've got a system that is under strain, that is potentially at, at its breaking or fracture point, I don't I think it's challenging to foster the space to look look up um to look upstream to look around to see the context in which the, the failure demand occurs and, uh, again, a, a fantastic concept that I learned this year from reading your book, Catherine, uh, around the sort of consequences we see from poor choices at a, at a much bigger or at a much higher level uh, that we know will flow down then through all of our other policy areas in a significant way. But, but I just wonder about that as a challenge going in to the next month or the next year or the next decade or the next century. How do we walk and chew gum? How do we deal with the environmental catastrophe, the economic strains and stresses and significant challenges that are faced in our community and around the world? How do we how do we patch up and care for people who are suffering and at the same time look for structural change? Millie, have you got an answer for me?
0: Yeah, look, in the three minutes we've got left, I'll just yeah. whip <laughs> off my quick solution. Um <laughs> Look, the optimist in me is like, this is actually really exciting. You know, things are so bad. We know. Things are crumbling. We can see it. So, we don't have to play by the rules anymore. And I, you know, I had this fascinating conversation with someone who was like, oh, what do you mean there are other economic ways of doing things? And I was like, well, you know, the neoliberal system, it's kind of just a fairy tale, right? Like, it's not real. It's just a thing and uh, this is an older economist who's saying this to me and I was like you know there's heaps of models and you should read Catherine's work and he just had this moment of like oh oh that's just a story you know so I I think we actually are at the point where we can and should and do have the courage to just say um no I'm I'm not that's not real thank you um And then thinking about like, so that's ambitious, like how do we be more ambitious? How do we be more collaborative? You know, Catherine, your point about um, Ireland, you know, how do we actually give pathways for people to own this process? That's what we found in our public good work. People desperately want to do this. So we have to be courageous enough to say these conversations are real work. These conversations are the infrastructure, you know, Um, and we have to think transformatively. And This is such a tiny thing, but, you know, I I went through university, I did politics, and I don't think I knew what policy really was, right? I don't think I had somehow I missed that memo despite doing that degree. And so I've been trying to say in conversations with people, you know, it's policy, right, that affects whether or not you can have a muffin at morning tea with your nursing colleagues. You know, that's policy. That That's why this is relevant to you. And so I think part of our job is also making clear the connections to upstream. Like, this is directly materially impacting you. It's a simple thing, but it's, you know, this bigger picture. So I think it's exciting because we don't, we're improvising now, and that's really fun, you know? <laughs> Um,
1: What about you, Catherine? What's awesome is that there is so much courageous activity already happening. There are people in communities down the street from me, there are businesses, there are people in the corridors of power, there are people in massive companies, there are people everywhere who are saying that business as usual is not good enough and they're rolling up their sleeves and they're starting to build initiatives that embody the sort of change we need. So yes, it's not yet connected and joined up to constitute a new normal of the extent to which it's needed, but there. this is not a step into the unknown and that... That gives me hope because I think more and more people are starting to recognise that we, we can't carry on the way things were. We can't keep reaching for those 20th century recipes. They no longer work or they're entirely inappropriate for today's age. And so people across the board, I think, and it, it is it really heartening to me how many people in business, in in government, I mean, amazing people within our public services who are really putting their shoulder into the world. And they'll never get public re- recognition. They will just have to just keep going and creating the space and pushing the envelope and seeing what businesses are doing to start to model. And there's this really geeky term in sort of system change literature around prefiguring, but they're just basically starting to walk the talk and show us what this looks like. And so I'll admit I find it really hard to be hopeful some days, but that's the antidote to feeling hopeless is to allow yourself to see the pioneers And then to get active in supporting those pioneers and telling others about them, because then others will start to replicate them, and then there'll be more of them, and then we'll start to move to a new normal, and then we'll start to move to a tipping point. That's how we start to change systems.
2: Just to to add to that, I think what really excites me as well and, and gives me great hope is the way that young people are putting themselves into these conversations and often leading these conversations. And at one level, I always think it is such an unreasonable expectation for young people to have to take leadership where older people have failed. Um, And yet to see the young climate activists leading the world in terms of thinking about what we need to do in the context of climate emergency, to see young people being active in politics and in their communities and to thinking differently and in a really visionary way about what we need to do, I think is so incredibly exciting. Um, Seeing young people's commitment to diversity and to inclusion, I think gives us really new ways of thinking. And I just wanted to share a comment that that a 10-year-old girl made, some research that we were doing, and she was talking about the importance of looking after the people around you. And she said, you know, we really need to look after old people who can't look after themselves and we need to look after little children who can't look after themselves. And when I do things for those people and they smile, it makes my heart happy. And I just think what a beautiful quote from a 10-year-old to think about what really matters in the world.
1: We should have that up on the sort of inbox or a post-it note on every single politician across this country from that 10 year old just that inspirational quote of just how it's so incredibly obvious when she she puts it like that
2: yeah the wisdom
3: so let's talk about what the opportunities that lie ahead in the next bit might be and I'd love for both of you Millie and Catherine to tell us about where you see opportunities for this sort of transformational change. I think we've we've articulated a fairly clear case for it. We can see glimmers of hope. We can see small sprouts of change occurring around the country. Where do you see the opportunities for transformation occurring, particularly in 2023? And, and what can we all do to try and help facilitate and make this happen?
1: So I think it, it does come back to what we were saying at the beginning of this podcast of how the conversation is opening up. And we're not people are not self censoring anymore the, these issues are firmly on the table, so that that is the first precondition for action and that's so that's hopeful. I think the government's starting to yes very tentatively step into the conversation around wellbeing and having more fit for purpose measurements of progress, understanding how to redo governance architecture so that it's more upstream, more holistic, rather than just funding the band-aids on the responses to the damage it's done and then counting that as success. And of course, Australia is, is not just starting this journey alone. There's lots of governments around the world, and they're also catching up from to those governments, but they're also re engaging because Australia had engaged with this conversation about 10, 15 years ago. So there's hopeful signs there. And of course, states and territories across Australia are embracing this idea that we need better measures of progress, we need put goals and outcomes at the heart of policy making. And the other thing I feel hopeful for is that just the extent to which enterprises are starting to be see themselves as wanting to be part of the solution. And I know you can dismiss net zero plans, but there was two pieces of news I saw just this morning that over half Australian businesses, large businesses have plans for net zero and a third of the biggest companies around the world have plans for net zero. Now, of course, plans are not enough, but that again is a sign that the conversation is is moving. And I think the more that businesses and enterprises are at the table and utilising what they do to bring positive impacts, the more hopeful I will get because that's change can happen very, very quickly when you mo- mobilise enterprises.
3: Fantastic, Millie.
0: Yeah, I think the the real exciting op- the really exciting opportunity for next year is that indications are from the government that they really do want to listen, or they they want to consult, or at, at the very least appear to consult, which I think is great because it means you know you can get your opinions in. So. I think there is a real opportunity to feel, fulfill that desire that people have to contribute and for, you know, local community groups, through the advocacy groups, through to, you know, whatever scale you're at, I think there is a willingness to listen to people's ideas. And I, I always remember Amanda Carl, who runs The Next Economy in Queensland, and her extraordinary work you know, prior to a change of government, they'd done all this listening to community, all this rethinking about how the economics of the region could look. And there was a change of government. And, you know, she got she got an advisor on the phone within five minutes of saying, hey, I've got a plan. So, I think that reminder that there's a government willing to think about things. And so, maybe we need to be willing to talk to them and tell them our, our ideas. So, I, I think just remembering that we have a role and a right and a responsibility to engage and to be really courageous in, you know, radically trusting our communities and networks. I think that's one of the real lessons from the community-minded independence is like radical trust um, in your community to do this together.
3: Sharon, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Can you, where do you see the opportunities for, for great system transformation or even the small things that might make a big difference?
2: I I think, honey, Greta, it's both the big and the small, isn't it? It's the small things that we can do in our own lives, in our own communities, within our own families that make a difference, but it's also the big things that that are are transformative. And I I think, you know, I would really reiterate the point that, that Millie made. What are the opportunities? Well, as Millie said, you know, disruption is here. You know, change is here. Emergency is here. And that means that there is not just an opportunity but a necessity for us to think differently. And so I think that opportunity is remarkable. It's here in 2023 or it will be here in 2023 as it is today. And so it's how do we grasp that opportunity in a way that makes us a more just, a more sustainable and a more equitable society and i mean that not for australia but i mean that globally um you know across the year we've been very focused for all good reason on what's been happening here in australia but of course if we think globally you know we still have a very large proportion of the world's population living on less than a dollar a day we have a very large proportion of the world's population not having access to adequate shelter to adequate water to adequate um, to adequate education or healthcare, And so how do we think about grasping this opportunity so that within our own country and globally, we move towards something that that is just? And, and really, that's about thinking completely differently, throwing away how we've done things and thinking about what our vision is for a, a fair, just and sustainable world. But Aunty Greta, I know you've done a lot of thinking around this what are your thoughts on on the big opportunities we see before us?
3: Yeah, look, next year will be another year of challenge, and and I think as we've we've um, highlighted a number of the challenges that are highly likely in 2023, and particularly thinking about growing inequality and the significant challenges we know that are occurring around the world and will occur here in Australia with more magnitude um, in terms of the economic cost of living crisis for for people whose living situation is more precarious. I think it'll be a really important time for kindness and caring in that respect. And as we have those conversations about how we can and should support people whose situation is more vulnerable, uh, it's an opportunity to do the sorts of things that both Millie and Catherine have talked about, of challenging the norm, challenging a 40-hour working week. Why do we need to do that? Challenging uh, a, a a universal healthcare. We need to think about how our Medicare system's working. We, we should have universal healthcare, but what does that? actually look like if we're doing that? Why is one in six Australian children living in income poverty and why do we think that that is reasonable in the world that we have at the moment? I feel like the space for these conversations has radically shifted and that is a tremendously important opportunity for us all to grab. Sometimes in some of the work that I'm sure many of us do, there's commentary around whether the conversation is useful and we need to get action we need to write this down we need to publish something we need to you know get a metric the conversations i think matter immensely i really think conversation discussion dialogue listening and learning sharing the importance of laughing and crying together is transformative in terms of the power of change and so I'll be looking for those moments, the moments for conversation, the moments for, for ideas, the moments for listening and learning from other ways of thinking. Um, and I hope that that's part of what how we, we foster the sort of change that we're going to need.
2: Beautifully said. I think we we, we are all sitting here nodding and, and, and I hope our, our listeners are also nodding and saying, yes, we, we do need action, but we also need the thinking and the conversation to take us to that point of being able to act in a way that is caring, compassionate and just and inclusive. We are getting towards the end of this conversation. And so in wrapping up, I wanted to think a little bit about what we're all going to do over summer. We're going to be taking a break from the pod for about six or seven weeks. Um, so what do each of you recommend in terms of summer reading, summer listening, summer viewing, Books, podcasts, movies, series, the things that you think we should all be, be, be paying attention to over the summer. I wonder if each of you could recommend perhaps a couple of of recommendations for how we should be spending our, our, our reading or our listening or our viewing time over summer. Um, Millie, would you like to kick off?
0: Yeah, that's a hard one because I really think what we should all be doing over summer is like switching off, staring out the window and like reading silly books with lots of jokes. Um, But I can't actually think of any good ones to recommend off the top of my head. I've got two um, books. One was published a few years ago by a guy called Rob Hopkins called um, From What Is to What If. And it's just this beautiful story. He was one of the founders of the Transition Town movement. And it's just this lovely, quite easy read into real research around you know what if we change our thinking from this is how it is to this is what it could be Um, and he one of the examples that stands out in my mind is he talks about in his community they went to the town hall and built um, you know built a model village of their village out of cardboard including you know there's the micro brewery that gets it yeast from the bakery next door and within two years basically that that had come true so it's, it's a really inspiring kind of not exactly light read but it is a summer read that is is actually real work um but, but easy to access and, and then the other nice guy too which just makes it even look more lovely oh yeah he seems like a nice guy I yeah. haven't met him but um and then the other book which I haven't yet read but I've heard the author on a podcast um is Rest is Resistance by Tricia Hersey and she's a uh African-American woman in the US. She's an artist and a scholar, and she her part of her art is resting publicly. And so she invites particularly uh, black bodies to be in space and place resting. And she talks about, you know, the beginning of capitalism and slavery as the beginning of capitalism and that owning of a body. And so what it means to resist that history. Um, as she's quite a powerful speaker, she calls herself the NAP, bishop and she you know you're ready to leap off the chair and shout amen as you listen to her Um, and it's just a really radical reframing of what resistance can look like and how it doesn't have to be the way it has always looked Um, so I'm excited to read that book but I recommend the podcast if if not the book
2: it's always great to have a podcast accompanying the book especially over summer when we might want to be somewhere other than sitting inside. <laughs> so fantastic recommendations. Catherine, what, what are your recommendations? For- yeah.
1: So I'm heading back to Scotland for six weeks, so I'm escaping that summer break um, while well, Australia's all at the beach, um, going to ha- hang out with my colleagues in Edinburgh. But I, I've got a, a, a book, a something to watch and a, something to scroll through. So the, the book is, I'm a bit late to the party on this, but it's a, a book by a Dutch historian, uh, Rutger Bregman, called Humankind. And and really lovely um, digestible read but really sort of pulling together a lot of the historical evidence, a lot of the neuroscience around our innately cooperative nature as as human beings so that's a really hopeful piece to, to have have with you during summer um rather more, less um less hopeful and perhaps a bit depressing but vitally important i mean i think everyone in australia needs to watch the australian wars series by rachel perkins around the, the frontier wars and and just the brutalization of so many aboriginal communities by by settler colonies i just think that has to be essential viewing for anyone living here and one website I've recently discovered, um, obviously it was there already, so that, that wasn't me discovering it, but re- recently I've stumbled across and have just been reveling in, is something, and um, you probably all know this because it's an Australian website, but called the Commons Library. And this is this incredible, incredible curated suite of tools and literature and guidance around campaigning around doing have it hosting conversations around systems change a- around advocacy and it's it is an absolute treasure um so i think it's commonslibrary.org or something along those lines and i've been sending it to all my friends and colleagues around the world because it is just such a gift to the this broad rich diverse movement of really anyone who figures that they, they want to be part of making the world a better place. And, and it is it is an absolute treasure. So that's the one I'd recommend for people to have a scroll through.
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Catherine. And we'll put those links um, up on the show notes for today so people can go and find all of this. Um, but, that Greta, what, what are you going to be reading and what do you suggest that we're reading or watching or viewing?
3: Uh, I think I'll, I'll probably get a few books together to read over the summer holidays. And I, one of the things I've noticed in the last year or so is I've always enjoyed listening to a reasonably broad range of music and I was aware during the pandemic that in fact it really condensed to stuff that was pretty restrained and that would probably keep me calm during a period where there was no doubt, probably more than usual underlying tension. And so in the last six months or so, um, my musical interest has grown again and I'm beginning to listen to all sorts of things. I'm thinking about where the music comes from and I'm thinking about the local artists and the ways in which I can support the the work that they do because the music industry is such an extraordinarily important part of Australia, particularly for those of us who grew up in Melbourne. Um, But it it really is. So that's going to get some of my attention and that's my relaxation is listening to music and and exploring uh, new things to listen to. Um, my favourite recommendation for the year has to be Catherine's book, The Economics of Arrival, and she she looks at me strangely. I walked into a bar in Canberra a couple of months ago, um, and I was carrying her book because I was meeting a friend, and I thought this friend of mine from ANU would very much like to read the book. And there's Catherine there in the bar, and so she didn't just get to see the book, but she got to meet the author. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, I want as many people as possible to read it because it does offer us a roadmap for transformative change in terms of economic systems and that that leads into all of these other messy policy areas that we talk about. It's part of how we solve our biodiversity and climate crisis. It's part of how we learn how to care for each other in a meaningful way and have lives that are, 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 are full of dignity and enjoyment. So I just want people to read the book. Not everybody, wow. but a, a few people would be fantastic fantastic lucky this um, is a podcast because my cheeks are bright red thank you. Yeah, you should that's okay i uh, just yeah a few key people to read this like the treasurer um and a few people in in the treasury department and finance that'd be perfect but i'll just keep on giving it to as many people as i can um sharon what are your thoughts
2: well, I'll obviously be watching reruns of the World Cup. But apart from that, um, Anna Greta, I, I agree that Catherine's book is a is a must read. And I, I have to just share this with in, in confidence with, with just the few people who are listening. Um, Anna Greta has a number of copies of Catherine's book that she carries around and, and gives out to people. So <laughs> So if you happen to bump into Aunty Greta over the summer, mention Catherine's book if you would like to read it. There are, are always a few in her bag. There is also
1: there is a Policy Forum podcast because we recorded one back in 2019 just when I was launching it at, at ANU. So there, there's a, an accompanying podcast for that too.
3: Fantastic. <laughs> and and the chat we have with Tim Harlow. <laughs> Tim, whose book is also a great read for people thinking about how how democracy can be different and living democracy. Uh, well, let's let's give a, a pitch for that book as well.
2: The um, and and of course, Millie's uh, the Remakers podcast is is the other one that that people should be. Should Be listening to and enjoying. Oh, now over we're summer. all just
0: being kind to each other. That's <laughs> good.
2: <laughs> the, the other two things that I'm going to read, both of which I expect to be heavy going, so I'll leave it to our listeners' discretion um, as to whether they want to read these over summer or would like to wait until February. One is Helen Sullivan's new book, and we've, Helen's the, the dean of, of our college here at the ANU. And she has recently launched a a remarkable book called Collaboration and Public Policy Agency in the Pursuit of Public Purpose. It's a really powerful book around the role of human actors in in policy analysis and policy change. And it it really helps us to rethink the way policy is made and the way it can be made. Um, And the other book that I'm planning to read is Alfredo Saad-Filho's new book on uh, Progressive Policies for Economic Development. We had Alfredo on the pod earlier this year and whether you um, believe in Marxist economists or Marxist economics remade for the 21st century or not, Alfredo's work is always fantastic food for thought. So that's the other one that I'm planning to read.
3: (laughs) What a reading list. And in amongst that, there's always some good crime fiction, some some lightweight drama, uh, lots of stuff to read and to think about. And hopefully we have a summer that's filled with catching up with friends and family uh, and having a lot of fun. So rest and restoration's on the list as well.
2: I think that is incredibly important, Anna Greta, and your message about listening to some, some music that soothes the soul, whatever that is for you, I think is very good advice. Mm, absolutely. We are going to need to draw this conversation to a close. This has been a remarkable way to end what has been a remarkable year. Catherine and Millie, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, sharing your insights, your wisdom, and your plans for summer reading and listening.
1: Thanks for having Hello us so us. much. It's been wonderful, really special.
2: Anna Greta, I said at the beginning, what better way to end the year that was to end 2022 than with a conversation with Millie and Catherine, that didn't disappoint. They are incredible thinkers and, and what a privilege that conversation was.
3: Absolutely, Sharon. I know I've been speaking with Millie occasionally over the last few years, and she has informed my thinking uh, about problems and problem-solvings and how we can ask provocative questions in a way to make the world a better place. And I'm so pleased to have Catherine Trebek back here in Canberra because she can equally challenge and provoke us to see a better future. So those two guests have so generously given given us a landscape, offered us direction, given us some wonderful food for thought as we go into our summer break.
2: It was a wonderful way to wrap up a year that, as we said at the outset, began perhaps with some mild desperation and panic, and and for many people, more than mild desperation and panic, but perhaps has ended with a level of hope and optimism, despite the challenges that we still face as a country and as, as as a globe. But Millie and Catherine always leave us with that visionary transformative thinking. It, it is incredible. And we will leave a link to all of the publications that we mentioned, including those incredible things that Kathy, Catherine and Millie are doing um, in our show notes on policyforum.net. We are drawing to the end of the year, and in doing so, I think both you and I, Anna Greta, would like to, to thank the people that make this podcast happen Policy Forum Pod would not appear on your favourite platform each week without the phenomenal work of Angus Blackman. Angus, thank you for your professionalism, for your commitment and for your good humour under pressure. It means so much and it is always a joy to work with you. Jack, Tracy, Jamie and the team at the ANU studio do incredible post-production work for us each week. Thank you to each of you. Helen Sullivan from the College of Asia and the Pacific and Renee fry McKibben from the Crawford School here at the ANU give us incredible support for what we do. Thank you to each of you.
3: The Policy Forum crew, Adelaide, Pat, Connie, David, Gill and Quentin, thank you so much for your support and all the hard work. Edo Daly and James Gigerher from the ANU Communications and Engagement team, thank you so much for your support. And of course, to all our guests from throughout this year, thank you for giving up your time, sharing your wisdom and ideas and with with us and with our listeners. Sharon Bessel, you're the most extraordinary co-host and it is such a pleasure working with you each week. I am so lucky and privileged to share conversation with you each week and to hear your ideas on the sort of challenges that we face. I could not want for a better Policy Forum podcast. Uh, Co host. Thank you so much for your time and compassion.
2: Oh, Ana Greta, I would say the same to you. And it, we often at the end of the year thank our colleagues for how incredibly generous, how extraordinary they are. I could not imagine a more generous or a more extraordinary person to work with than you. And I am very conscious, Ana Greta, that, that some of the conversations we've had this year. Particularly about the healthcare system have been so close to your heart and at times really difficult for you to engage in. And you have been extraordinary. We talk about care and the importance of care. No one that I know values care in the way that you do. And that's reflected in this podcast. It's reflected in the work that you do as a physician, as a cardiologist every day of the year. So thank you. It is a privilege and a pleasure to talk with you every single week. And I can't wait to continue these conversations into
3: 2023. Sharon, I'm so much looking forward to it. Extraordinarily generous words. I really am very grateful. So finally, to you listening, thank you so much for being with us through the year. Your feedback and encouragement means so much to us. We love receiving your ideas and your thoughts on the work that we've done Thank you so much for listening, and we really can't wait to be back with you in 2023. You can reach out to us over the break on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, on email at podcast at policyforum.net, or via our Facebook group. You type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Please let us know what you think about the series, about the podcast. Please share some of your favourite moments throughout the year. And if you're listening back to episodes over the summer break, please share them on social media uh, so that we can hear your ideas and thoughts. We'd love to hear what you would like to hear more of next year.
2: If you haven't already, we would love you to subscribe on whatever platform you pod with and leave a review there for us. And as Anna Greta said, Do listen back to Policy Forum Pod over the summer. We spent a few minutes at the beginning of this episode reflecting on some of the conversations that we've had, but there has been such an incredible range of conversations with such extraordinary people over this year. They are really worth listening to. We will be back again in 2023. We wish you and your families a very happy Christmas. We wish you season's greetings and we wish you a safe and peaceful break. But for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.
3: And for me, Anna Greta Hunter, look forward to seeing you next year.